Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Yash Bronsky. I'm Steven Zuber. Oh my god, Steven Zuber, you sound so different! I'm just kidding, Steven's in Cancun with his wife. Aww. Aww. <laughs> so... So it's no? just us. Okay. But for people who are first-time listeners and may not know who you actually are, did you already say you're just Dickie? Oh, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is just Dickie. I'm just Dickie. Yay, welcome. I think I am anyway. Oh, that's true. You don't remember your birth. Someone could have just been telling you you're just Dickie this whole time. Yeah, everyone could be in on the conspiracy. <laughs> right? That's what the Basin Conspiracy is actually named after. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's you guys. Yep. This is silly. So, what are we talking about today? We are talking about this article at Palladium Magazine, written by... Oh crap, I forgot to get the name. Natalia Deshaun. Natalia Deshaun. Excellent. Uh, it is an article that at uh, the Less Wrong meetup I was talking with um, friend of the show, Matt Freeman, who also has his own podcast, which we will plug right now. It is We've Got Ward and the Doofcast. Yeah, the uh, Doof Media. Doof Media. So if you go to doofmedia.com, you can find all the stuff he works on and his uh, other co-hosts. They have some great podcasts. Highly recommended. Yeah. But we were just talking about, you know, elites in uh, America, and he recommended this article, said it's really cool. I said, okay, I'll read it. And then I read it and I was like, this is really cool. We should do an episode about it. So now that is what we are doing. And the name of the article is The Real Problem at Yale is Not Free Speech. Uh, and but... it's uh, by Natalia Deshaun on palladiummag.com. Yes. And I believe, according to Matt, uh, Natalia Deshaun was back in the day Nyancat over at uh, Less Wrong. Oh. Yeah. So huh. old time contributor. Before we got into that, though, I wanted to quickly mention this idea that i recently ran across which helped put things a little bit into perspective not into perspective it gave me some background to go on and okay. I, i'm just sharing this background now uh so i read context machines tumblr now and then and uh context machine had this awesome post on bruce wayne republicans okay wait who's context machine context machine yeah spelled with a k um I mean what do they post about what's their thing oh oh their thing is basically posting about uh 90s culture Okay. Yeah. And since, you know, I also grew up in the 90s, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is fun. So I enjoy reading that. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, making interesting snarky uh, parallels to the modern day. Mm. I'm like, cool. This is right up my alley. Sounds neat. You should link to it. Okay. I will do that. And people who didn't live in that era, weren't growing up around that time, probably won't be as interested. But eh, maybe they will be. I think be. a lot of us in this community probably grew up in the 90s too that's true and uh also he has a thing for taylor swift is that the big singer uh that's a big singer okay well then i got the name right uh, like red lipstick blonde hair uh that describes like many pop stars <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> i'm sorry but yeah also also a fair bit of taylor swift stuff uh but anyways had this post about bruce wayne republicans uh where he was saying that most people nowadays and this included me, think of Republicans as basically kind of evil, environment-destroying, rich people who uh, are racist and want to keep down the poor. And he said that there used to be a concept of Republicans, which probably a, of specifically upper-class Republicans, which a lot of Republicans still uh, probably hold to, being the Bruce Wayne Republican is what he termed it. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, Bruce Wayne is the alter ego of Batman, as you probably know. Yes. Okay, <laughs> and uh, Bruce Wayne is also very rich. 
But uh, Bruce Wayne and his parents didn't, well, Bruce Wayne less so since he uses his, his money to punch people. But his parents, <laughs> specifically, uh, used their money to help make Gotham better. They found, they felt they had a responsibility and they were, uh, you know, keeping up a, a civilized demeanor and always had proper manners. And they would uh, spend money on helping to uplift the city and fund programs for the poor and those sorts of things they were yes specifically elite and rich and uh they did i don't want to use the term exploit the labor of the poor because they were trading money for labor yeah Yeah, exactly they they were the the what a lot of people think of as evil capitalists except without the evil part so much they were they were like billionaire philanthropists yeah and uh and he said that's basically how a lot of um People who vote for Republicans and who are anti-tax cut, uh, tax hikes and that sort of thing view them that way. That they're not these evil people like in the Marxist class conflict taking advantage of the proletariat. The, they are trying to carry society forward in ways that they have the ability to and other people don't. So anyways, that, that was basically it. It was a short little thing, but it helped me think of um, those sorts of people as n- not evil, which is always a good thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that... I know a lot of Republicans that I like, and uh, I don't agree with a lot of stuff that the Republican Party likes, but I don't hate all of it. And also, I, you know, the whole two-party system, I think, is kind of screwed up for both sides. Mm-hmm. I do feel a little weird about the Bruce Wayne uh, Republican idea, because it's like, have you met rich people? I have not met rich people. You haven't? Okay. N- n- not that rich, no. I- I've met a few different kinds of rich people, and there are billionaire philanthropists and i think that they are in the minority or except to the extent that um they're donating to receive tax cuts uh, or tax kickbacks or to promote whatever their company is make it look better and yeah i can i have no idea if they're the minority or majority or what yeah i don't actually know uh, my, my impression is that they're the minority but i don't have numbers on that that would be interesting to look into yeah. and um i do have a lot of respect though for the ones who are doing good stuff I think there was this like Slate Star Codex post that was against against uh, billionaire philanthropy or yeah. something like that, and uh, I agreed with a lot of the points from that too. I guess I needed that sort of background because I came from a very much class warfare kind of background where I viewed all rich as evil and the enemy, and it was just nice to have other perspective because this post that we're going to be talking about is specifically about the elite and the rich and why they are important and why things are a problem right now. And I mean, things are always a problem in society somewhere. There's never a time where we don't have problems, but why there is this particular problem that this article is talking about. Yep. Cool. The article starts out saying that the campus free speech debate is just a side effect of the real problem. Uh, such a, Also, as are the debates about diversity and inclusion, and that the real problem is a lot deeper than this so-called free speech debate that we're having. And I don't know if we need to touch on that. Probably everyone's already aware of the culture wars and the free speech debates. And... I'm going to yeah, assume that everybody is pretty familiar with the culture wars. I guess uh, the TLGR version, if anyone isn't, it's the um, pro-diversity, um, anti-sexism, uh, social justice uh, side of things versus people that are traditionalist or against these things for various reasons. Yeah, and and the various ways these battles are happening on college campuses and throughout society. Yeah, I, I kind of want to bring up the story that like opens the article, because I think this summarizes kind of 
the next point that you were about to make about like what what's this article about what's this problem sure do it so this like starts out with a personal story uh, natalia starts the story about marcus uh, a fellow yale student who dressed and behaved like a poor writer and one day she sees that he looks starved and he's sitting there chain smoking cigarettes and she offers to buy him a sandwich and he says you know i'm rich right it turns out he's super duper rich he only acts poor because he likes the aesthetic yeah, she pointed out that she was about to buy a sandwich with what little money she had left for this guy who could buy and sell her entire family multiple times over. Yeah. Uh, with with his trust fund, not even with the rest of his family's <laughs> money. <laughs> it was his trust fund. Yeah. And uh, she says that in terms of Yale, uh, I was in the bottom 2%. Yeah. That approximately 2% of students hail from the lowest income quintile, while 69% come from the top 20%. And she also mentions that... Uh, Basically, all of those uh, bottom quintile students are moved to the top quintile after graduating Yale. That uh, going to Yale is the fastest way to join the upper class. Which is interesting. Yeah. I'm so, uh, did, uh, she didn't really go into why more people don't do it, did she? Why what? Why more people don't do it. Don't go to Yale? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Yale only has a few slots. I guess I guess that's it. Yeah, and they got to take most of them from the elite bridge classes. She did point out that uh, Yale costs fifty thousand a year, but if your family makes under sixty thousand a year and you're one of the you know very gifted and very lucky people to get in, uh, it's free, so or basically free. So it's actually cheaper than community college uh, if you're poor and uh, you can get in. And and if you can get in, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. So she she says the big universities like Yale can't stay out of the culture wars news. Left versus right, political correctness versus free speech, empathy and inclusion versus economic realities, students for fighting social and racial justice against morally bankrupt faculty and administrators. But, she says, after attending Yale for some of the larger scandals in recent years, these dichotomies ring hollow. Okay. And, yeah, this is her explanation of why the rest of this podcast (laughs) and the rest of this article. Uh, She did mention... In the when you were talking about the the rich people pretending to be poor, that basically everyone on campus was like that. Yeah. To the point that it was, you know, she wouldn't have known any of them were rich aside from the fact that there's some tells that yeah. you know pretending to be poor is not a hundred percent accuracy thing. Yeah. Well, she says uh, while she was attending Yale that she realized that uh, the others that were in the bottom two percent would complain really vocally about how broke they were all the time. Want to go out for brunch? Oh, I can. I'm so broke. Wow, you took a taxi to the airport? I always have to take the subway because I'm so broke. Yeah. And she says, real poor people don't talk that way. Yeah. She found out that they're not real poor people. These are member of members of the upper middle and upper classes who, compared to the real hyper-rich people, maybe do seem poor, but they're not poor by anyone's standards mm-hmm. besides that. And then the question was, like, why? The first question was, why are they pretending to be so poor? Yeah, um, actually, could, could I get into the signaling thing that she said about after that? Yes. She says, pretending to be poor is a lot easier than pretending to be rich, but there's still some small quirks that you have to get right. Social class doesn't just influence how you walk and talk, it influences how you interact with others. The stereotype is that poor people are improper, but sometimes it's the opposite. They try to do things as they think they're meant to be done. Spending a hundred hours building bat wings for a Halloween costume. Renting a limo for their child's prom. But lying about anything's tricky. You risk being found out. So what are these people trying to accomplish by acting broke? Yeah. And this raises the broader question of why pretend to be part of a social class that you're not. 
so she points out that uh, the Saudi billionaires want to avoid being kidnapped, so they keep a low profile. And then the regular rich probably are following the common impulse of uh, trying to emulate people that are in a class above them. But, like I said, they don't actually know how the real poor live. She said once she was shamed in front of a crowd for not donating to a society, even when they had, uh, even when she donated a different gift just a day ago, and uh, when she confided to a friend, he was like, so you're upper middle class? And, and no, not, not at all. But the fact was that, like, no one at Yale really had any sort of context of poor people. Yeah. They, they hadn't met them. They didn't know how they acted. They had, at best, these kind of caricature stereotypes that they were trying to enact. Yeah, they, they never met them. Uh, there was this other instance where her class was comparing the costs and benefits of being on food stamps. And Natalia commented on her own experience with the program. And her professor was shocked and said, you don't really mean you're on welfare. You just were supported by your parents, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like you couldn't actually believe that somebody, that he met someone in real life who had really been on welfare. Yeah. Which just shows how insulated they are. Yeah. The thesis of the article seems to be, which is where this is going now, that these are the people with power who fail to comprehend the meaning of that power. That they're abdicating their responsibility, the responsibility to be like the Bruce Wayne Republicans I talked about before, and they don't even know it. Yeah. At first, it seems like distorting your wealth signals is just this like funny signaling game that upper-class people do and that shouldn't really have any effect on anybody else. But um, Natalia says, if you put on an act long enough, you end up forgetting that it's an act. Yeah. This kind of, the just kind of super rich forget that they have power and privileges that others don't. Yeah. And Natalia actually claims that this started happening before Yale and uh, talked about an incident from her high school where she thought that this rich friend of hers was being bullied for being too rich because these kids were making fun of his high class accent. And turns out the kids doing the bullying were even richer than the kid that they were bullying. Yeah. And they were actually making fun of his undisguised tells of class. Like, she oh, you're not faking being poor well enough. <laughs> she says that. When these kids grow up, they end up at conferences where everyone lifts champagne glasses to speech about how we need to tear down the man and usurp conventional power structures, apparently not realizing that they are the man and the conventional power structures. <laughs> yeah. So she says, this is a problem because we forget the extent of our own power and start blaming an ephemeral elite beyond ourselves for the ills of society. And when something does need to be changed in elite thought, we bail. We forget our own position of strength and assume we cannot bear those risks. We give up the fight before it even starts, as if someone else can or will fight it. Yeah, she brings up this thought experiment um, about what it would be like being the biggest, strongest person in a hunter-gatherer tribe, and therefore needing more food than anybody else. So what happens when you have this power but you don't take responsibility? You'd be in trouble. Resentment would grow. Why do you get to eat so much of our hard-won food? What makes you so special? So if that person took on a leadership role, they could use their strength to protect the tribe and then earn their extra share of food. But would you want to be the strongest in the village right at the moment when you failed to use that strength properly and the village is dying and the rivals are out for blood? Yeah. Or would you rather be the average person just eating the normal amount of food without being hated? Yep. She says the rich and powerful are expected to take responsibility for things and blamed when they go wrong. And, um... Yeah, she says that the check your privilege is a line which just about everyone has heard. Uh, what it means is kind of evasive, but uh, there's some point to it. The rich have privileges. And with great privileges come great responsibilities. 
to quote another superhero. Uh, so <laughs> they therefore have responsibilities, and the responsibilities are not always so fun. So they say that the recent scandals at Yale had to do with race and social justice. But Natalia thinks there's something else going on, that members of the ruling class aren't sure what to do with themselves. They're not even sure they want to rule. Yeah. They're expected to use their power to, you know, help society and rule benevolently. Because, uh, well, she says, the reason they're expected is that if they don't, no one else can or will. The middle and poor classes don't have the powers and privileges they do, and can't afford the necessary personal risks. But um, those, the elite are not stepping up anymore. Yeah, and Yale in particular is different from other Ivy League schools. It has this history that's rooted in public service. Yeah. It started in 1701 when a few ministers were disappointed by Harvard and left to start a more pure, more good, more proper university. Uh, the reason that Harvard's motto is Veritas, whereas uh, Yale's is Lux et Veritas, light and truth. Truth without light is pointless. Knowledge without an aim is at best not useful, and at worst destructive. So they have this kind of high standard that they claim to stand for. But uh, it's happening... This, this thing is happening at all the big uh, elite universities. And and I didn't realize before I read this article just how influential Yale is. Like, I mean, I knew it was a big college, but like, you know, so big college, rich people go there and get good jobs, right? That That is, in my middle class upbringing, that is what I associated colleges with. Colleges are where you go to learn how to get a good job. Yeah. And uh, apparently not so much once you're in the very high levels. Uh, colleges are where you go to learn how to use your power and be a good elite person and uh yale was like the top of these the the list of presidents that came from yale and the list of people who uh went on to be on the supreme court or in other positions of high power was just it was astounding i was like holy crap and uh she points out that people who graduate yale go on to write the um the american psychiatry association book whatever that's called oh the dsmv no yeah diagnostic for whatever it is uh but they write that which decides which conditions are covered by insurance right which is a huge amount of power they uh go on to become presidents of the national art society and decide what artists get funding which is also a huge amount of cultural power they just everyone who not everyone most people who graduate from yale go on to really make a difference in society through that one point mm -hmm. of, of of their job going forward so uh, I guess Yale is a bigger deal than I thought it was. Yeah, I had always had this uh, impression that the elite colleges, kind of the reason that you go there is to network with other elites. Yeah. Um, at least I know a lot of people say that about business schools. Like, you don't really learn there to learn how to run a business. You go there to meet your future business partners or and your competitors. Um, and I guess also it makes sense that you would go there to be among your peers and kind of learn the social norms mm -hmm. for being rich, <laughs> mm -hmm. which apparently are pretend you're not. Backtracking just a little bit about the elite's responsibility to keep society running, she does point out that societies exist in a pretty fragile balance. The Rwandan genocide only ended in 95. Syria was a flourishing nation just one decade ago and is now in total war. And Venezuela was stable just six years ago and now, you know, has what? <laughs> the the average wage is not enough to buy enough calories to live. People are emigrating in, in mass to surrounding countries because the whole place is just falling apart. So, yeah, it's uh, kind of important not to fuck your entire society over. The elites 
at least the current generation that's coming up and i would say more than just that like this is starting to spread everywhere are just kind of abdicating that responsibility they aren't doing their thing uh, natalie says was it natalie uh, natalia natalia says that uh something is wrong in elite circles preventing clear examination and correction of ideological errors and this creates an atmosphere of impotence and guilt that contributes to rich young people pretending to be broke to escape that responsibility yeah why well, this is dangerous uh this is kind of she said replacing the old type of class signaling which had to do with what designer handbag you wore what accent you had um what prep school you went to and now uh they've got this new class signaling where they find any reverse privilege points they can if they're cis white men they pose as allies uh on an institutional level the old ways of legitimizing powers are gone and the new motto is this diversity is legitimacy can i uh mention the cool anecdote anecdote about uh the position of master at yale oh yeah no that's that that's important yeah which feeds into this it was really an interesting position which appears to be unique to yale at the very least uh harvard and other colleges don't have it uh the role of a master of the school there's apparently like a, a dozen different schools within yale or colleges or whatever that are their own self-contained um they got their own gyms and libraries and dormitories and all that and each one has a master and the master is kind of like uh, I, w I don't even know what you would call the master well, they they renamed it to head of college and it yeah. sounds like the person that you talk to when you're uh, have concerns about the way the college is run or yeah but not just that like the the master always has a a tea time that they put on they welcome all the new students to the to the school they sh teach them they show them the ropes they like they're like i almost say like the live-in butler yeah house master like i just looked it up uh it says the master is the person who memorizes students names yes meets with the parents and is a welcoming presence memorizes all the students names every year i can't I can't even memorize the f names of my friends. I'd love to learn what their mnemonic techniques are. Yeah. There's 12 of them. There's one for each of the, uh, residential college. Uh, the dean of each of the residential colleges handles administrative and academic concerns. The master's involved in all cultural matters. Yeah. So they throw the master's teas where they curate and welcome special guests. And uh, the etymology stems from the word magister. Yeah, so they're this, this awesome position that is like, perpetuating the culture and making everyone feel welcome which honestly sounds like an awesome job i i would love to just make people feel welcome and happy and do things to make their lives better right uh <laughs> um which i guess you can only get in a really rich society that has the resources to spare for that kind of thing yeah well apparently it's a uh, unique because Nat natalia says that uh, that's one of the reasons she chose yale over harvard and princeton at harvard the sense of culture was non-existent a welcoming party with the president wine forget about it we picked up our welcome packet and we're sent on our way <laughs> exactly yeah so this is this is a cool position and uh there was apparently one of the culture war war things battles broke out over the term master because that is also the term that slaves had to call their owners in uh the american south yeah and, specifically african-american slaves in uh yeah. yeah in the south yeah and so uh instead of I mean, I guess the administration pushed back for a couple months and then completely folded, and now it's called head of college or uh, head of school. Uh, head of college. Now it's called head of college instead of master. And uh, I guess they still do the same thing. But why? What was the point? The, the You've just destroyed a unique, interesting piece of culture, well, a small part of it, like the title. But the title itself has culture to it, right? It, it's, it's... Yeah, Yale's been around for a while, and... Um... It's a neat piece of flair, and 
there was like something that uh, the author said that maybe it would have been better to have educated the students about their academic heritage. And the administration could have explained that the term has nothing to do with slavery in America and actually derives from a rich history that makes Yale unique. But apparently they uh, just caved in immediately. Yeah. <laughs> they said after a little bit of debate, the title was very quickly changed. And she says that they, were, they, weren't, they didn't take any polls of the student body either, right? There was no yeah. authoritative process. They just said no and then caved after a bit. And uh, they could have pushed back, but instead they folded to demands of a small number of students willing to make noise. They also had this co Halloween costumes incident. Yeah, which... also made national headlines, because of course it did. I, I guess I didn't hear of it, because I guess I try to avoid these sorts of things. But I guess there was... There's so many of these things happening all the time, it's hard to keep up with who's offended by what. But, uh... Someone, I, I guess, was, like, offended. No, 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 not, no, no, not it even It wasn't offended. even anybody offended. It was the Intercultural Affairs Council uh, wrote an authoritative email to the entire student body right before Halloween telling students to be mindful about offensive costumes. So a few students approached Erica Christakis, uh, Christakis, a professor, child psychologist, and the wife of Yale master Nicholas Christakis, and told her, uh, it's kind of weird that the council can just email the entire student body and tell it what to do. So Erica wrote her own email proposing Halloween costumes should be policed not from the top down, but from the bottom up with students having conversations with each other. And, of course, the entire internet attacked Erica and her family. And they both resigned, right? Uh, or both were fired? They were calling fired? for them to be fired. Uh, I'm not sure if they were. It was apparently... Oh, a... yeah, no, they, they stopped teaching. Both her and her husband stopped teaching. <laughs> yeah, right? And they really kind of fucked up. Uh, on the national scale, I guess, it did make some headlines. Uh, but overall, a pretty small news story. Like, went away after a few days. Like I said, I missed it entirely. But uh, Natalie says that, or Natalia says that, it changed the entire dynamic on campus. That for the entire year, the issue was debated in dining halls, it split apart friends, and uh, it formed a mist over everything else for the entire year. She, she then asks, like, why? What was the point of all this happening, right? And in short, the point was that it was, it was claimed to be to help poor people. Immigrants, people whose parents are from distant lands, people of color... Uh, changing master, firing those professors, all that was for this. Except, of course, it did so little to actually help any of those people that it couldn't possibly have been the motivation. Uh, first of all, there are almost none of those people at Yale to start with, and none of what happened is actually to the benefit of any of these poor people or people of color. Uh, the only people who really benefited are a few activists willing to invest time and energy into that game. This leads to her next... Uh, point that this is a an ideological revolution that's that's coming over Yale and the the elite sectors of our society in general. Uh, she says that this is a small example of that. It's a small clique of agitators seizing more and more power, purging their enemies by virtue of their superior internal solidarity and a bold and demanding ideology with some lukewarm popular moral support and no real organized opposition. Uh, so. That's that's just like any other, you know, revolution. Right after a revolution, a small circle of insiders have a bold ideology, some ambient support, and no real opposition. So they start purging. Yeah. And so what's the result of this um, on Yale, or I guess any of the other big institutions where this is happening? Well, uh, the result is an institution increasingly unable to carry out its own mission as tuition rises to pay for more administrators and ideological drama makes it harder and harder to actually teach. 
now we're back at the original question. What was the point of Yale? Yeah. What was the point of going to Yale? What is the point of elite institutions? Uh, Yale is currently having this existential crisis. Uh, students are taught to break the system, but Yale doesn't even want to teach them what the original system was or what it was for or how to productively replace it. The university itself is so lacking in vision, it doesn't even know what the ideal student looks like or what it wants to teach them. And she says, so what is the point of the new ideology? Uh, it's not ideological rigor, obviously. So it seems to be an elaborate containment system for the discontent generated by the failure of the current system and an absolution from guilt for the elites and a new form of class signaling. Um, shouting from the rooftops they aren't doing enough is much easier than following any traditional system of elite social norms and duties, let alone carefully re-engineering that system to re-establish order in a time of growing crisis. So, yeah, coming back to society is in crisis, elites are shirking their duties to do something about this because it's scary and, and uh, having responsibilities is less convenient than not having responsibilities. And so joining this ideology uh, is one way to absolve that guilt. Yeah, I like this description of it. When you live with this mindset, what you end up with is not an establishment where a woke upper class rallies and advocates for the rights of minorities, the poor, and underprivileged groups. What you have is a blind and self-righteous upper class that becomes structurally unable to take coordinated responsibility. You get stuck in an ideological mode of coordination where no one can speak the truth to co correct collective mistakes and overreaches without losing position. Yes. So this obviously is not ideal. No. Again, saying Yale students, if they weren't powerful when they came in, and most were, they gain power uh, by getting a Yale degree. What do you do with this power? You don't want to abuse it. You're not evil. You want to do something different. You want to be absolved of your power. You are ashamed of your power. Why should you have it and not somebody else? Maybe someone more deserving. You never signed up for this. You'd rather be somebody normal. But not normal normal. More like normal with options and vacations and money. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to be something even better than normal. You want to be the underdog. Which is kind of the whole ideology right now, right? That, Like yeah. you were saying, the... Um, Stat the oppression points or whatever what what it was yeah something like that I'm, i keep being reminded of something my philly lesser on group uh had as one of our readings talked about fashion um in in the same kind of sense uh how fashion trends change with uh striping or, or uh stratification in class and uh so you imagine wealthy people own expensive brands and then less wealthy people buy the same things because they want to look like those wealthy people and then the poorer classes buy cheaper knockoffs of those things and it trickles down and it's not cool anymore if like some poor kids wearing the same sneakers that you have so hmm. what the wealthy did is they invented normcore <laughs> which is a fashion style that is composed of blue jeans sneakers and a gray hoodie over like a plain t-shirt or otherwise just uh dressing down if you're super elite the thing is you don't have to dress like it actually yeah. people if, if you're wealthy enough people know who you are they know everyone knows who mark zuckerberg is regardless of what he's wearing and people can't copy that and yeah it's just weird interesting signaling stuff yeah she ends with um saying that this isn't just yale and this isn't just colleges this is reflective of the entire american elite society and uh, 
I think I agree. It, it seems to be more and more in our political sphere as well, that people are very interested in woke signaling and less interested in coming to... Well, they're less interested in actually doing anything exactly. about the causes that they claim to care about. Yeah. They want to... And they using want the power responsibly. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sadly, the article is just here pointing out a problem. It doesn't offer any possible solutions, which is always kind of a bummer. But, um. Well, it, it yells at Yell, though. It sounds like yeah. what she's trying to say is Yell needs to grow some balls. Yeah. And actually, like, stand up for. Actually, like, the reason we use this word master, and maybe that's not the best example, but, like,. She's kind of saying, like, you know, you used to stand for something. Yale used to be, like, this place that would teach you as someone who's elite and wealthy and powerful how to behave well and how to use those powers correctly and responsibly. And why aren't you doing that anymore? Why are you just caving into all of these? At, like, there were more. There was, like, a, I think the dean... Somebody found all of the uh, previous dean's Yelp reviews. <laughs> it was the student newspaper. Yeah. Okay. Um, they found all the worst reviews that she had ever made in Yelp, collated, collated them into a PDF, and then published it in the student newspaper, and it was just a hit job. Mm. <laughs> and ba basically, she seems to be yelling, start being more like Bruce Wayne's parents and stop being lame. Stop <laughs> abdicating your responsibility. Start realizing you have a lot of power and you have to use it for good. Or donate all your wealth to somebody who's doing good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Stick it all into the top charities, you know, like there's other things you can do to be good. Donate 10% of your income to against Malaria Foundation or whatever. Yeah. So reaction time. How, how do you feel about this whole thing? Because I, for one, have always until recently hated the elite. And if I saw something like this, I would be like, good. I hope they all fucking <laughs> drown in their own filth and we can wash them away. Um, and uh, I feel that less so nowadays and specifically be like, it feels really weird to say anything. For me personally, it feels really weird to say anything in support of the elite and powerful. So I just feel really weird reading this and being like, yes, you should use your power and be good as opposed to just being wiped out. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm I just, very conflicted. I don't know. Uh, communism's not really a viable strategy. Right. Or like... We haven't found a way to make it a viable strategy. Um, and so there's human society is always going to structurally um, turn into a system where there's elites and where there's middle class, maybe, and, and then lower classes. Mm. Um, we're a hierarchical species, and that's going to be hard to break out of. And uh, I don't hate rich people because you can't paint with a broad brush like that. <laughs> I, my cousins are ultra rich and i kind of watched their lives be ruined like uh huh. i was jealous of them because of all the stuff they owned and their nice clothes and their expensive schools they went to and then i actually like spent some time living with them and i was like oh i don't i, don't, I wouldn't want to live like this it was very uh awkward in the sense that they were really being taught how to present themselves at all times they weren't allowed to be kids they were wearing, like my my cousin was wearing little suits with like short pants and speaking with a fake British accent. <laughs> had to pretend to be interested in economics and or I don't know if he had to pretend, but huh. he was just this like child businessman. <laughs> that's that's the kind of thing I would I would want our elites to be doing to their kids. <laughs> be like, yes, know. he's gonna have to take care of the economy when he grows up. I guess. I mean, there's probably better ways that you could. Like, but it's again, it's teaching them signaling. It's not teaching them how to like mm. what are the most effective charities and 
here's moral theory. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's, yeah, where I take issue. Um, and yeah, I agree with the article in that, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, elite schools should be taking on some of that responsibility that used to be what they were for. What are they even for now? Although, uh, also I kind of wish colleges would go away Hmm. and then maybe, maybe that's how you get rid of it. I don't know. Like that's kind of an interesting idea. If college does go away and, um, education starts to take the form of more of boot camps or online learning, I wonder how that's going to affect this and what other institutions are going to pop up as replacements. Do we even, does something need to replace it? Well, I think that my idea of college going is the place where you go to get the training for a good job is kind of like what boot camps and other training yeah. institutions should be. And I, they I, should yeah. wipe away most colleges. But then there's these universities, which, like you said, are basically training the elite how to use their power in a way that's to society's benefit. And I think those would should stay around because that is an important thing. And they should work like they did, you know. 100 years ago back before all this crap started happening i don't think they should work the way they did 100 years ago because probably or there's probably some crappy outdated shit well um, okay yeah <laughs> but you know before they gave up all responsibility on training the elite and powerful into how to use their powers for good because i think that's an actual important job still and someone needs to do it yeah i wish something like that existed in general like i wish there were there was enough emphasis on things like teaching social skills to kids yeah. or like how to deal with trauma instead of, you know, schools are still structured in this like training you to be an office worker or factory worker kind of way. And college, my college education was useless. Yeah. It was not the thing you're describing uh, where you go to learn how to get a good job or how to do a good job. I didn't learn any job skills. Yeah. I learned lots of theory. I learned lots of abstraction. That was cool. I like learning things, but uh, I didn't. I didn't graduate college feeling ready to start, and like, I didn't know how to do anything. It took me a long time to learn how to do things like repair my car or pay my taxes. Or, yeah. and I know there's there's a chorus of people that'll say like, we need to school needs to bring back home ec, and they need to teach kids real skills. Hmm. And but like, yeah, I think to some extent, yeah. Um, there's a lot of kids that never learn how to do anything and then suddenly they're in their 20s and they're living on their own for the first time and they don't know how to fry an egg (laughs) that is a bit sad and they also don't know what to do about their depression which is sad or like their abusive boyfriend or girlfriend or you know it's just i think a lot of colleges like the middle class colleges uh style themselves after the elite universities like yale because they're like oh we're offering the same sort of service but they're not at all because their their user base is so drastically different that modeling themselves on those universities was a huge mistake and doesn't help anyone. It, I didn't. It didn't strike me that uh, the school I went to was modeling itself after Yale or anything. Like I didn't get I mean, any. They of tried the... to teach you culture and theory and crap, right? No, they didn't really. Oh, I mean, they didn't? Um, I you know I picked what classes I was taking and I started as an environmental science major and then switched to a visual arts major. And then I learned Flash and other random stuff. But uh, no, there wasn't any, like, cultural studies, really. Or, mm-hmm. like, uh, there wasn't any kind of instructive cultural studies. Like, this is what is good. This is how you should behave. Yeah. Um, it's more, like, a completely abstracted. Like, here is how some cultures in the past have behaved. The thing I remember most from my year in college was basically the culture of college. And it was a beautiful, wonderful thing, and I really liked it. And it was just this 
this sequestered place away from the rest of society where everyone just liked to live the life of the mind, you know, and it was amazing. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is not what my experience was like. And that sounds cool. Yeah. But I mean, that also and in that environment, they try to teach you job skills, which is, it's not a good match. <laughs> and, and i think boot camps are much better there you know here's your job skills we're not bothering with all these like dormitories and quads and greens and uh, after class activities this is just here learn your thing yeah my boot camp was like okay here's an intensive uh here's an intensive walk through the material that you need to know um and for me it was clinical research so it's like here's medical terminology here's fda regulations <laughs> here's the belmont report uh here's how to do here's how to draw blood and stuff and then like right and then they brought in uh career coaches who were like here's how to dress here's how to write a resume here's where to go to put your resumes here's how to network i never learned any of that in school <laughs> that would have been useful if they were teaching me actual job skills like how do you get a job i was never taught how to get a job yeah maybe my school was especially bad but <laughs> where did you go uh stockton university in new jersey there wasn't, like, a campus feel to it at all? Uh, I mean, I commuted, so maybe I missed out on that. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, maybe. But uh, I didn't, I don't know. I, I never got a sense that there was any kind of... Like, like even the show, Have you seen the show Community? Uh, yeah. yeah. You showed me some. Oh, that's right. Yes. Even that show, like, it's a community college, but it still kind of has the campus feel while they're on campus, you know? Hmm. This is a separate area. Yeah, I didn't experience any of that. Okay. I'm, like, trying to project the future if uh, universities do start going away and, like, how things might change. Maybe it would be a good thing I could see um, kind of it democratizing education in a way and everybody. But, like, it also could do the opposite where I, I think that um, our culture currently has this problem where nobody is taught what to do, um, what your place in society is. Like, I think that this is kind of a narrower this article is kind of a narrower scope of uh, this this overarching people kind of are like, all right, here you go to school, you learn math, you learn history, you learn whatever. And then it's like, all right, go off into the world. And you're like, I don't know how to be a good person. Yeah. I don't know what my job or my role in society is supposed to be. I don't know how to be or feel useful. And that's like very isolating and kind of crippling for a lot of people. Yeah. There's other societies that have these uh, kind of coming of age rituals where and, and structures to them where you grow up like knowing, okay, here's here's what your job is going to be. Like, here's here's what your role in this community is. Mm -hmm. Here's how you uh, achieve uh, your, you know, here's how you get to your rate of passage. Here's how you earn it. We here. don't really have, I think that's a big part of the problem is we don't really have community here in the U.S. Everyone no. breaks up and moves to wherever the jobs is so much that there's no, like, shared this is where we as a people have lived for 300 years and we help each other out. And I know the guy across the street. Yeah. I grew up in a suburb where there was no sense of community. There was no gathering place. Yeah. Um, I went to church, but we didn't really hang out with anybody else from the church. So like, I didn't have any like church friends. Yeah. I kind of hung out with like some of the kids on my block, but it didn't feel like the adults were connected in any way or that like once we got older, we were connected with anybody in any way. It was pretty, uh, I don't know. Everybody kind of lived in their house with their family, and that was their whole network. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's like that in Europe. I think I, uh, my impression is, I, mean, I guess it depends on the country, but Europe seems like they have more, a little bit more kind of history of there being cultures that are more closely tied together. Yeah. I mean, they're also a capitalist system, so I imagine it's weaker than it used to be, but it, they do seem to be yeah more closely tied together than us in the U.S. 
obviously there's some bad things about cultures like the one I was describing too, where if you are assigned a role in society, that limits your freedom. Right. And some of these rites of passage were pretty horrific. Like, I think there's this one in South America where you have to put your arm into a glove full of bullet ants. That sounds terrible. Yeah. A bullet ant's bite feels like being shot. Yeah. <laughs> so the kid just has to deal with being basically shot in the arm multiple times. And then they're like, congratulations, you're now a man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like child torture. But, right. but also gives this kid this feeling of all the adults in my village have done this thing. And if I want to be an adult, I have to do this thing. So it's a commitment device. And it's like, now, you know, I'm an adult and I accept my role in society and that I'm going to do the good things. And, you know, so there's got to be like some ways that we could kind of replace that in a a better way that than the way that our schools are trying to do it or that our communities are totally lacking it. Maybe there's a little bit of that in like boy and girl scouts. I don't know. And shared suffering and shared hardship really brings people together, too. Yeah. So if you know everyone else has gone through the same painful experience. I mean, and then afterwards, when someone else does it, you're like, I was there too, you know? I know what you're feeling. Yeah. I like the solstice that I went to that was about smallpox. Yeah. Or it was about us overcoming smallpox because I did feel kind of... The the thing they intended was we were talking about how terrible it is and lighting all... Like, blowing out all the candles and then talking about the defeat of smallpox and how humanity came together and we used the power of science and not no one has to die anymore from this stupid disease. Lit all the candles again and sang happy songs, and it's like you can generate that kind of feeling without ha- having to put your arm in a a glove full of bullet ants. <laughs> you can get you can get some pretty strong emotions from just like kind of doing little rituals, which uh have their own set of problems. The rituals. Yeah, I mean, you were the one that was uh you felt squicked out by the idea of doing rituals. Yeah, in general, yes, they can brainwash you. Yeah, I mean, like anything that's trying to intentionally manipulate your emotions. I would can like be used to for like- evil. I would like to like rituals. Yeah. <laughs> That's the first step. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, I think we've exhausted this topic, though. Okay. On to the less wrong posts, then? Okay. Cool. And if anyone has any other comments about this topic, we have both the uh, Basin Conspiracy subreddit and a Discord, which are always linked in the show notes at thebasinconspiracy.com. Uh, let us know what you think the future without colleges might look like. Or the future with an elite class shirking their responsibilities. Although there, there does seem to be some pullback from that now. Like, I think it was at its nadir in, what, somewhere in the 2016, 2017 range. Things feel like they're pulling back a little bit from there. What's now. that? The whole um, everything succumbing to wokeness, I guess. Oh, Okay. Maybe I'm just seeing it less. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I'm definitely seeing it less because I'm just not on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Alrighty, so less wrong posts. The first one we have is religions claim to be non-disprovable, which is one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, so it starts with uh, this biblical story. The people of Israel are waving between Jehovah and Baal. So Elijah announces he'll conduct an experiment to settle it. Quite a novel concept in those days. Hmm. The priests of Baal will place their bull on an altar, and Elijah will place Jehovah's bull on an altar, but neither will be allowed to start the fire. Whichever god is real will call down fire on his sacrifice. The priests of Baal serve as the control group for Elijah. The same wooden fuel, the same bull, and the same priests making invocations, but to a false god. Then Elijah pours water on his altar. 
ruining the experimental symmetry, but this was way back in the early days, to signify deliberate acceptance of the burden of proof, like needing a 0.05 significance level. The fire comes down on Elijah's altar, which is the experimental observation. The watching people of Israel shout, the Lord is God, peer review. I, I yeah i love this whole explanation of history's first recorded experiment which it isn't technically but you know it was it was beautiful it was all the parts of an experiment are there laid out and and it was just really fun to read yeah especially this and then the people hauled the 450 priests of baal down to the river kishon and slit their throats <laughs> this is stern but necessary you must firmly discard the falsified <laughs> hypothesis and do so swiftly before it can generate excuses to protect itself. If the priests of Baal are allowed to survive, they will start babbling about how religion is a separate magisterium, which can neither be proven nor disproven. Firm but necessary. <laughs> Stern but necessary. You know, every now and then, just a little bit of mass murder to get the experiments going. It, it, was, it was wonderful, and it is in the making of this broader point that, uh, as he says, back in the old days, people actually believed their religions instead of believing in them. And saying something like the local religion could not be proven would have gotten you burned at the stake. The vast majority of religions in human history tell stories of events that would be that would constitute completely unmistakable evidence if they'd actually happened. Uh, I actually, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly uh, why this post appears here in the sequence of posts. It seems a bit disconnected from the rest of them, but I love it so much. I don't really care. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, one of those, this was still the early days, early-ish days of the new atheism, and there were still fights going on as to, you know, whether the new atheists should just shut up about things, and uh, re religion is its own separate magisteria that science can't say anything about it, and so forth. So this was this was pushing back on that. Points out that early Egyptologists were genuinely shocked to find no trace whatsoever of Hebrew tribes having ever been in Egypt. Uh, they weren't expecting to find a record of the Ten Plagues, but they expected to find something. And they found out that during the supposed time of the Exodus, Egypt ruled much of Canaan. That is a huge historical error, but if there are no libraries, no one can call you on it. The Roman Empire did have libraries, and thus the New Testament doesn't claim big, showy, large-scale geopolitical miracles like the Old Testament did. Do we want to say anything about the whole experiments in in religion thing? Uh, why did you have something in mind? What I have in mind is that I agree completely with all of this. That people always say crap like, you know, science can't, you can't test religion with science or whatever. But then as soon as, this is like the old Mott and Bailey thing. Then yeah. as soon as you're out of an actual formal debate, they're going back to their church and all their religious friends and family and being like, yep, this God miracle gave me a winning scratch ticket or <laughs> cured my child's gout or whatever it was, you know? Like, they they always act as if God really is there and is present in the world and is doing things, which, if it was the case, would be testable because anything that has an effect on the real world can be seen in the real world, right? Yeah. You can measure it. Yeah, uh, I was earlier telling uh, Inyash and Steven this story about uh, watching one of my cancer patients receiving CAR T cells, and they had a priest in the room who came over and blessed the cells. Yeah. <laughs> and then he blessed our hands. 
I, I would have kindly... D- it's like, I bless these cells. <laughs> yeah. I would have kindly said I'd rather not have my hands blessed. And I bless the hands of the healers. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, now let us all bow our heads in prayer. And I, was, I had no idea any of this was going to happen. Yeah. But apparently the patient was religious and had requested this happen, so we all had to kind of just go along with it. But it was, it was awkward. Dude. We've got these, like, bioengineered high-tech cells that are being injected. And... And it's He's important. waving his hands around them, like, yeah, <laughs> doing his magic on them. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. When I uh, was a kid, I was told that if you pray and you are good, and you know, you go to confession because I was Catholic, um, God will give you whatever you want. Like God will answer your prayers. So I'm like. Okay, I got on top of my desk and I was like, I wish to fly. <laughs> and then I fell. And I got back on the desk and I was like, oh, I, I really wish to fly. I super duper believe and I've been good and said my confession and I don't think I've ever done anything bad because I'm a little kid anyway. So I, just just let me fly just for two seconds. Fell again. Got back up and I was like, all right, God, if you let me fly, I will do extra chores mm-hmm. and I will be so good. I'm going to donate money to charity i'm gonna <laughs> that fell again all right god i'm gonna stop believing in you if you don't make me fly <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> so threatening I, god <laughs> yeah and then i fell again and then uh my young self didn't come to the conclusion that god doesn't exist but that he exists but he's an asshole ah. <laughs> it took me a little while longer to wrap my head around the atheism thing because i've just never heard of it yeah. i didn't know that that was an option right but yeah i definitely kind of was like god after that <laughs> yeah that guy yeah. all right sure jerk that's cool yeah there's also the whole uh women can't do stuff mm-hmm. part of or like i don't know weird outdated shit that... was that still in part of catholicism oh yeah like i mean that you read the bible and yeah then you're supposed to kind of double think the bad shit that you've read out of the bible but like oh but that was back in the day and like now we do things this way but that's fine and i'm just like yeah but what about what the slaves were okay but yeah. We're just going to not talk about that. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're just going to pretend God's not a jerk. Just like when he didn't let you fly. God's a jerk. Yeah. Thanks. This goes into the next point uh, that I was actually going to, that I pulled out. Uh, the post says, not only did religion, not only did religion used to make claims about factual and scientific matters, religion used to make claims about everything. Religion laid down a code of law, the sexual morals, the form of government, answered scientific questions from biological taxonomy to the formation of stars. The modern concept of religion as purely ethical derives from every other areas having been taken over by better institutions. Ethics is what's left. Or rather, people think ethics is what's left. Ethics has not been immune to human progress. Why do people think that ethics is still fair game? Which, yeah, what the fuck? I think because you can't disprove ethics. Ethics is still, like, you can still debate about it, and you can still have two different ideas. So the fact that you can't um, do an experiment and be like, well, animals evolved, or no, stars are created by big burning clouds of gas. Uh, You can argue with somebody all you want about whether ethics are evolved or whether God sent them down, and you can't really do anything to prove it. Yeah. I mean, I guess you kind of can, but it's it's much fuzzier. But like when the Bible says grasshoppers have four legs, people are like, well, the Bible isn't supposed to be a scientific document, right? So no big deal. But then the Bible says you can't, uh, that it's okay to keep slaves. No one says, well, the Bible isn't supposed to be an ethical document. They're still (laughs) like, 
It's an ethical document. We just ignore that part. Yeah, no, that, 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 you were used to be allowed to keep slaves. Yeah, yeah. But exactly. not anymore. Right? So, yeah, but just the fact that people still say that it's about ethics is weird when they don't say that it's about laws of governance or about scientific claims. Because it's just as wrong on the questions of ethics as it is on all these other things. It's, yeah, super wrong. Yeah. Uh, where were we? If you uh, say the Earth is flat, people will look at you like you're crazy. But if you say the Bible is your source of ethics, women will not slap you. <laughs> Most people's concept of rationality is determined by what they think they can get away with. They think they can get away with endorsing Bible ethics, so it only requires a manageable effort or self-deception for them to overlook the Bible's moral problem. Yeah. And the idea that religion is a separate magisterium that cannot be proven or disproven is a big lie. A lie which is repeated over and over again, so people will say it without thinking. Yet which is, on critical examination, simply false. It's a wild distortion of how religion happened historically, of how all scriptures present their beliefs, of what children are told to persuade them, and of what the majority of religious people on earth still believe. And there we go. It's giant Martin Bailey lie, and we should call people on that crap when they try it. Yeah. Actually, like, if I really think about it, the thing that finally made me an atheist was reading the Bible. Yeah. Um, and it was in college. I actually took a Bible as literature class because I had a lit minor. And uh, we read it with accompanying... I think there were like the Dead Sea Scrolls and there was um, a feminist interpretation of the Bible and uh, a couple of other different... A feminist interpretation of the Bible? Yeah, the, the instructor really wanted us to analyze it through various lenses. And, that uh, takes some mental gymnastics. Oh, no, it was like not pro-Bible. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> it was very All much right. like this is a horrifying book that, tell, that like tells terrible stories about women suffering and gotcha. being disenfranchised. And Okay, I thought it was somehow a feminist pro-Bible thing. I'm sure that probably exists. Um, I'm, I'm sure, sure lots of is. those exist. Yeah. But, uh, yep, that, that did it. Mm -hmm. I, I wish more people would just read the damn thing. There's parts of it that are like a lot of the Old Testament is just animal sacrifice. Yes. So much animal sacrifice. It goes into endless detail about what color the cow has to be and how old it is and whether it's got spots and <laughs> how you've got to array its awful on the altar and what time of year you're allowed to do this. and Yeah. Yeah. Ethics. <laughs> I liked the post and it made a good point and it stuck with me, especially the first ever scientific experiment part. <laughs> that really made it memorable. Yeah, I think I wish that it had actually gone into why it is disprovable. Why which is disprovable? Uh, religion. Okay. Well, I mean, anytime religion makes a claim and that claim is contradicted by reality, it's partially disproven, right? Yeah. And you get enough of those claims and you're like, this is just a giant load of horseshit, isn't it? I think that somebody who was not already convinced of the atheist viewpoint wouldn't read this and come out of it like feeling well, like that this was a good argument right yeah this is kind of a preaching to the choir like maybe that was its purpose and it's more about um it was definitely preaching to the choir in the uh in the effect of because there were a lot of people who are basically or there still are i guess a lot of people who are basically non-religious in their day-to-day -day life but will still go to church a couple times a year and say that they are like christian or whatever and when this separate magisteria stuff comes up they're like oh yeah you know you Bible's not a scientific document. I, I still believe that there's some kind of big God thing out there and 
and the the Jesus helped us out or whatever. <laughs> I, I just don't bother with all the little minutia because the Bible writers probably got that wrong, you know? And I think this is a very good counter to that. Um, if someone was exposed to this being like, no, that's just you lying to yourself. And it is a very big lie. Because I meet a lot of people like that. I'm friends with a lot of people like that. Yeah, I just wish this article would be something that I could point to them. I remember having a coworker who was religious and actually asked, like, well, if you can prove to me that evolution happened, then um, I, I don't know. I've, I've never encountered anything that I thought was good proof. So I spent a really long time sending him documents showing, like, DNA yeah. <laughs> and fossils and, like, it's literally geology and... Yeah. There's there's so much evidence. I was just like spamming this guy, and then like I, I think he kind of like pretended to read a little bit of it, and then closed it, and then stopped mm. reading any of it, and was just like, ah, I'll read that another time. Yeah. Like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to be proven wrong? All right, all right, okay. But I wish, yeah, that there was like a place that I could have just sent him one link <laughs> that had like the knockdown argument for here's why the Bible is a lie. Maybe that exists now if anyone knows where that is. No, there's there's no such thing. Yeah. Religion is such a deeply entrenched in your emotions and your mind kind of thing that it's, it, in my opinion, literally impossible to send someone one link that would change their mind. It's a process that takes lots of time and some social support. But I just want there to be one website that has all the evidence for the I mean, fact that life evolved there's there's many websites like that there's many yeah, yeah. but that's intimidating but if, if there were <laughs> right. one link that i could send that just had all the information and you could go into uh history and mathematics and just like no wouldn't wouldn't matter worst case scenario they would accept that evolution is true but it was guided by god mm. but that would still be a step forward i think okay Anyway, let's go on to the next one. Okay. The importance of saying oops. <laughs> Which religious people don't do until eventually one day. Uh, it starts out with a um, comment on Enron. Enron, for people who weren't around at the time, was a big energy firm uh, based out of Texas, I believe, who uh, were doing gangbusters, making lots of money, great, great company, and then all of a sudden, it turns out the entire thing is a fraud. They've lost $5 billion, and the whole thing collapses overnight. Lots of people are out a lot of money, and it was a huge financial scandal. And of course, no one went to jail because no one ever goes to jail for stealing $5 billion. You only go to jail for stealing 10 20 bucks. 20 um, But uh, uh, Eliezer read a book about it, and he said that a unsurprising feature of Enron's slow rot and abrupt collapse was that the executive players never admitted to having made a large mistake. When catastrophe number 247 grew to such an extent that it required an actual policy change, they would say, too bad that didn't work out. It was such a good idea. How are we going to hide the problem on our balance sheet? As opposed to, it now seems obvious in, retrospe in retrospect that it was a big mistake from the beginning. If we only admit to small local errors, we will only make small local changes. The motivation for big change comes from acknowledging a big mistake. This is a post that is pro-epiphany, basically. Uh, it's saying, you know what? Every now and then, take major stock of your life. And this, I get the feeling this is how most people actually do abandon religion. So maybe it was related to the previous post. Hmm. But uh, it, it, it takes a lot of little small errors and mistakes and oopses over a long period of time until eventually you're like, holy shit this whole thing was wrong, right? Or at least that was the case for me. 
I think that is probably the case for most people. I expect that there's a few people who converted on the spot, or deconverted as the case may be, but probably more often there's more and more questioning over time. Yeah. But at some point, you gotta you gotta acknowledge you made a big mistake. And Eliezer says, a traditional rationalist upbringing tries to produce arguers who will concede to contrary evidence eventually. There should be some mountain of evidence sufficient to move you. This is not trivial. It, distinguish sciences from, it distinguishes science from religion. But there is less focus on speed, on giving up the fight as quickly as possible, integrating evidence efficiently so that it only takes a minimum of contrary evidence to destroy your cherished belief. There is a powerful advantage to admitting when you have made a large mistake. It's painful. It can also change your whole life. And I don't know entirely how I feel about this because... I mean, sure, if you're wrong about something, especially something important, you want to stop being wrong as soon as possible, right? Yeah. Like, if you're wrong about whether um, slavery is good, you want to change your slavery position as soon as you can. I want to change whether... If you're wrong about whether global warming is a thing Mm -hmm. and that we need to do something about it, I, I want to very quickly change to, hey, let's do some mitigation. Yeah. Let's very quickly try to do what we can to fix this. And here in business, it's always best to, if you're going to fail in something, fail fast. That way you yeah. don't spend a lot of time and a lot of money on something that's going to fail. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of um, more related to agile sort of structures where you're coming up with lots of different ideas and trying to move quickly and really quickly, like, test them all, figure out which ones don't work, throw them out, and keep moving towards the better ones, the ones that work. The ones that test the best. Um. And so I agree that's a big advantage and something one would want. But I mean, the problem is if you knew the thing was wrong, you would already not be doing it, right? Well, when you find out it's wrong is what he's saying. You have to be willing to be like, oops, I was wrong. I fucked up big time. And I'm going to acknowledge that and move on. And I agree. I remember um, somewhere in the rational sphere I read people talking about wanting to norm uh if people admit that they have made a mistake uh that everybody cheers and high fives them and i love that and uh actually i've started like a little habit of doing that with my friends cool where like oh i realize i realize i messed up or like uh leaving my last job i got <laughs> cheered and high five by my friends i was like yeah that was a mistake <laughs> <laughs> and now i'm unemployed and i gotta find another job and it's like it felt great for them to be like, yeah, <laughs> that job sucked. Get out of there. You did it. You, you're Now you can find a better job. And it's like, yeah, well, kick this idea in the trash. Now I can find a better idea, something that you should feel proud of. Yeah. And that I wish society like didn't punish us so hard for, like, that the societal norm wasn't that it's embarrassing and you lose face if you go and publicly say, I have made a mistake. That should be something that we're like... You know, uh, if a politician comes and says, oh, I, I realize I've made a mistake about this policy and that science shows that actually this is better. That should be something that people are like, yeah, like, I want to vote for that politician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like uh, we have this like weird idea that people need to always be right and always look confident. And... But I also think giving up on things too quickly can be a problem, too. Like that would make you a easy target for like get rich schemes, mass. What, are, what do they call those? The um, 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 multi-level marketing schemes or uh well, i think the point is religious once you, claims and cults and things like that once you have evidence that shows that you were wrong 
then you unless like somebody faked some evidence or something no i mean people often do fake evidence yeah i guess i mean and in general like you want to investigate and really find out whether you were wrong and i think you should be really rigorous about that but yeah some things are not that clear cut and you could be confused about something and well, I think that's a case where you wouldn't throw it out if you're not sure. You have to keep investigating. Eventually, you'll find enough evidence one way or the other. Right. Well, I mean, but for, that's for that's most things. that that is what what Eliezer is sort of arguing against. He did say that there is everyone agrees there's at least everyone in the rationalist uh, sphere agrees that there's some mountain of evidence that can change your mind on some things. But Eliezer is saying that that level might should maybe be a little bit lower so people don't hang on to ideas for too long, which on the one hand is true, but on the other hand is also a bit of a defense mechanism. I think it's also fine to be able to admit that I used to have absolute faith and confidence in this hypothesis, but now I'm reading this stuff that seems to say the opposite thing, and I'm not quite sure which one it is yet, so I'm kind of holding off on saying which one I'm going to support until I have collected yeah. more evidence, and that should also be fine. I think that's, yeah, I think that's the biggest advantage of, of this whole Bayesian rationality movement, is the idea to have degrees of confidence and beliefs rather than being just like i'm a capitalist or i'm a communist you know it's more like eh, I pers- you know give 80 percent credence to the capitalism thing and uh i'm not i'm not being on one side or the other yeah so much because um, you know there was there was a time when it was easy to convince people that uh socialism was the best thing to do because it hadn't been tested it hadn't been tested on on paper it looked great you know everything would be better if this worked out so people were like yeah i I find this convincing and that uh turned out to be bad (laughs) so people were some people were too easily swayed in that regard uh this article ends with don't indulge in drama and become proud of admitting errors it's surely superior to get it right the first time But if you do make an error, better by far to see it all at once, which is kind of the thing that I disagree with. I think that we should, as a society, norm it being fine to admit when you've made an error. Hmm. Especially the whole fail fast thing, too. Like, I I like that that's uh, becoming something that's more widely known that businesses are using, that people developing software are using. Try lots of stuff. If it doesn't work, move on to the next thing. Well, I do think he's right that, I mean, it is better to be right the first time, but... Yeah, but yeah, you're right. Admitting error should be a celebrated thing. He says, I have watched others making their own series of minimal concessions, grudgingly conceding each millimeter of ground, never confessing a global mistake where a local one will do. They do their best to minimize their embarrassment by saying I was right in principle, or it could have worked, or I still want to embrace the true essence of whatever I'm attached to. Defending their pride in this passing moment, they ensure they will again make the same mistake and again need to defend their pride. So, yeah, I, I, in general, I think he makes a good point about failing fast when you can. You're failing publicly and owning up to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next time we're going to read Focus Your Uncertainty and the Proper Use of Doubt. Yes. And there are links to those, again, at thebasingconspiracy.com. And going on to listener feedback, yes? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, we've got one from Zikaran, which was on Are the Bayesian Conspiracy? On deathists. (laughs) Late, yeah, I know. But I'm saddened by how Caitlin Doughty was represented in a previous discussion. It seems unfair to paint her as an enemy of immortality-seeking transhumans. She's a mortician with two main goals. 
prevent grieving people from getting scammed by expensive mortuaries, and to help grieving people have a healthier view of death to get them through the grieving process quicker. She focuses on natural burials that are better for the environment, better for your wallet, and better for your relationship to your dead relatives. Okay. And I think that's a fair point. People are complicated, and I don't like to take one bad thing that someone has said or done and then throw them under the bus whole, you know, whole hog. Uh, I actually believe I have watched some of her videos, and I think they're pretty good, but I do still not like the pro-deathism. Yeah. I, I am happy to say that... Uh... I would be, you know, I would be happy to say that she's probably a good person and probably doing a lot of good work overall. Yeah. And at the same time, say that her statement that uh, life is meaningless without death or whatever it was that we were um, harping on that one time is a morbidly abhorrent statement and I is just wrong and people shouldn't say that and should feel bad for saying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear a lot of, I hear this phrase a lot that death gives life meaning yeah. and i'm like no like living li gives life meaning i can I see um um the idea that something is impermanent gives it more value this is true mm. but um there's even if you live forever there's still parts of you that are impermanent you're you grow up you change you get different jobs um you get different lovers and you're in different relationships you have kids your kids grow up i mean Lots of things are impermanent, but like, change is great. When you're dead, that's you're not changing anymore. Yeah. You're you're done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I I don't like the idea that uh, death gives life meaning uh, is like kind of put as this overarching thing that gives life meaning. I think what gives life meaning is are the experiences you have while you're alive, the things that you care about, the people you care about, like what you see, <laughs> what you accomplish. Your hopes and dreams. I mean, come on. <laughs> we can do better. Um, but yeah, like the other things that Zeke mentions about helping people avoid getting scammed and especially the thing about the, the like natural burials. I really hate the whole process. Like Embalm the, you forever in the ground. That's another thing that like rationalists should support though. Like, yeah, cremation, pumping like a whole bunch of... Uh, or, or cryogenically freezing your brain that I, I am a big proponent of that one yeah that's because <laughs> then maybe you can be brought back I, I don't know how environmentally friendly that is but i think it probably still beats uh being embalmed and stuck in a box that's never going to biodegrade i mean i think you're allowed to be a little environmentally unfriendly in the interest of not killing yourself yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the thing most people i i believe would get behind aside from extinctionists so yeah, I'm okay saying Caitlin Dowdy, probably a great person doing good work, who said one or maybe several morbidly abhorrent things, which uh, doesn't make her a terrible person or invalidate her work, but those things are still bad. I kind of want to email her. Yeah? I wonder if I could kind of... I mean, you probably could find her email address. Yeah, probably. Why? What would you say? Oh, just, hey, it. I love your show, but mm -hmm. <laughs> this one thing you said... Like, here's my take on this. I, I wonder if she'd respond or if she gets so much email that... I mean, probably, but it's worth a shot. Every now yeah. and then people have a chance to get to an email and you might be the lucky one. Yeah, I mean, I think it is an interesting... Uh, assuming that, uh, you know, she's not just going to throw out anything that goes against her um, core beliefs or whatever. Yeah. That there's probably, like, less interesting emails that she gets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go on to... 
Why we cur, I think. Oh, go ahead, Ianash. Okay, uh, this one was in response to, I think it was two or three episodes ago, where we mentioned Scott's, uh, Scott from Slate Star Codex, uh, Scott's post about how society has basically taken away uh, a lot of people's ability to support themselves. They can no longer go out and uh, forage and do those sorts of things that people used to be able to do because society has paved over those parts of the world and replaced it with this hierarchical structure where the only way to live is to work in a factory or be you know useful in some, way, in some other way yeah exactly and so that uh society does owe people things because it did that um and why we cur would like to point out uh saying if we were if i were to guess i'd say hunter-gatherer societies had basically the exact same problem but at a smaller scale I very much doubt that a human could venture out of his tribe alone into an area with good resources without being forced out by another group claiming that area. I think as a human, you're always dependent on some sort of society since no human can live alone and compete against other humans who cooperate. And I think, I mean, first of all, that's a good point. If anywhere where there is other humans also vying for the same resources, you're going to have an issue and you're going to need to be part of a society and, uh, I would like one. <laughs> I would like to once again um, bring up the movie Noah, which I thought was a fantastic uh, <laughs> representation of that. That uh, uh, Noah and his his family were super rich because they had this really fertile area of uh, ground that they kept all to themselves. And then these people that were literally starving to death were like, "Well, fuck you. We need this, or we're gonna die." And then he loses everything because they come in here and they take all his land, and now he's not rich anymore. Which uh, I'm not sure that's the story the, the the movie was trying to tell, but it was it was really interesting and I enjoyed that aspect of it. But yes, uh, first of all, yeah, you any any group of humans could push you out, so you do need society anyway. And even if there were no other humans around, if like if your tribe was on the frontier here and the first ones there, uh, I, I I don't think you can live without a society anyway. You're gonna be eaten by you an won't animal be comfortable or, anyway. Yeah, um, some people can live as a hermit. Most people do need. Uh, human contact yeah. for social animals and not but, just um, for the social stuff i think even for survival it'd be really important it would yeah it'd definitely help survival but i think that this is kind of missing the point of scott's statement there where what he meant wasn't that you could go off on your own and forage like what he meant was that the system that we have built is incredibly complex and we would, it didn't evolve for it there's a lot of people that can't hold down a good job and make good money who would have had no problem living in a hunter-gatherer society where they had just have to collect acorns all day <laughs> or, you know, wanted to do one thing, which is build arrows or, you know, um, slightly better standards of life in some cases, slightly worse. I mean, if you uh, look at a lot of anthropological studies, they show that hunter-gatherer societies, people tend to be a lot happier than we are. <laughs> There's almost no depression or anxiety uh, because they're living in the environment we were that we evolved in originally now does that mean that people don't still die in childbirth all the time and of totally preventable diseases or a cut to your knee yeah sure so benefits drawbacks but yeah also society was rather unequal and horrible so that that part sucks too but i mean if you're used to it i don't maybe think hunter-gatherer society was it was pretty uh egalitarian uh or was i mean it, it continues to be there's still hunter-gatherer tribes yeah yeah well i mean i guess in terms of general hierarchies yeah pretty egalitarian but yeah it was once our agriculture uh developed that the inequality started becoming really intense although yeah when when i read about the levels of um 
I guess nowadays we would call it domestic violence of just like men abusing women and and hurting them and using power over them in those societies. I'm like, holy fucking shit. I, this is horrible. And I do not want to ever go back to that sort of society. <laughs> this morning I was, uh, I'm actually going to get a PlayStation uh, VR because I want to play Beat Saber. And as I was looking at this ridiculous K-pop music video where this K-pop star is like playing this really intense Beat Saber in VR and just like running up walls. And I was mm-hmm. just like, man, I really like the time that I was born into. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, of course, I don't know any kind of like future time periods that might be even cooler than this one. But if I look back at the past, nope, <laughs> I'd probably be a mom of nine kids or dead of malaria. Yeah. Alrighty, next next one. Just reply to this shit. Just, just to, to reply to this shit? Yeah. I think the framing of people as means versus people as ends helped clarify somewhat my own values. And this is on the same topic. Yeah. What's the point of the system? The whole system. Society. Ask the system. How do we measure progress? What are we trying to maximize? GDP. It's not that the people don't care about anything else. It's that the suicide rates can keep rising. And if the GDP also rises, at least something percent, Head of state can stand in front of the people and boast of progress and prosperity. The utility function of society is currently misaligned with human values. If the system's ever been good to you, it's only because it has been thus far necessary to keep you a compliant, productive member of society. A lot of things are capitalized in this. I'm trying to convey that, but I don't know if I'm doing a good job. This is why automation can feel like such an apocalyptic threat in the current economic system. Because suddenly, you're not even that necessary to society's goals. And you know its goals don't explicitly include you. You are a means to an alien end. Society is an alien god. And I think that really put into perspective exactly why uh, automation does seem so threatening and UBI does seem so important. Because, um, yeah, in theory, the gay space communism is what we all want, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the the, the uh, nobody has to work because automation has completely replaced all labor and we're all happy. But uh, in practice, what it looks like is automation replaces all need to work and therefore we all die because the only thing the system needs us for is producing things. And when we aren't even useful for producing things anymore, there's no point in keeping us around. I think there's two arguments there. If we've got intelligent AI, it's not going to care about our values anymore or other people say, uh, if we automate away all the jobs, then people won't know what to do with themselves and they'll be sad. I Which think I, the second one is dumb. I Yeah, super disagree with that. Yeah. Um, I don't like the evil AI version. Uh, I'm not a fan of that one. Hopefully don't doesn't come to that. I think what he's saying, though, is that society is already sort of a, um, or the system in caps, is already a sort of weak level uh, AI that is unfriendly. It is not aligned with our goals because as humans we have a lot of goals like happiness and the prosperity of our loved ones and so forth but all society currently cares about is gdp and uh since that's what society is working towards that is what all of our human labor is more or less being put towards it is misaligned with our values and this is becoming a problem yeah i mean like bringing up global warming again because we're all gdp maximizers we can't admit that we we aren't allowed to go on air and say actually 90 something percent of scientists all say that this is real and it's a problem without having to have somebody else on there who's some crackpot that got paid off by not enron they're gone (laughs) 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 but uh 
oh, well, we're going to give them both like equal time to debate whether the, the global warming debate. And it's like, meanwhile, we all know that this is happening. Uh, yeah. And we really should have started doing something about it years ago. But considering that we're GDP maximizers, that's going to hurt the GDP. We can't do anything about it. And yeah, since society is the aggregation of all human effort, it's much bigger than any one person. And thus having its values misaligned to our own values is kind of a problem. Yeah, we've got like old people in nursing homes. I don't know. I could think of a lot of examples of ways that society is screwing people over. Mm -hmm. And the reason people put old people in nursing homes is, I guess, because it's more economically efficient Yeah, to pay somebody else to take care of your elderly parent. I guess the same thing with daycares, too. I mean, it's more economically efficient to have both parents work full time and have a nanny take care of your baby. Yeah, you're very busy out there being productive and keeping that society GDP t on target. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I'm sad. <laughs> Thanks uh, just to reply to this shit. Yeah, jerk. <laughs> Send a You're nice just like God. Next time. No, just kidding. That was a good comment. Yeah, it was. All right. Um, how about we like thank some patrons? Let's do that. So this week, we would like to thank our patron, Dan Wall, as our patron um, yeah, every thanks. other week. <laughs> thanks, Dan. Uh, we appreciate you. Gratitude being sent your way. Yes. You are helping redirect some of society's resources to things that are more aligned with our values. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As opposed to simply maximizing GDP. Because this show, as far as I know, does not produce any GDP. Although I guess it does provide <laughs> entertainment value, which is a big part of GDP, too. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. yeah you know what the more money people give us the greater a percent of percentage of gdp we will be so someday if all the money comes to us <laughs> we will be society huh. what i'm saying is, is everybody should give us all of their money <laughs> I, I don't know you don't know about that i'm not sure if we become gdp okay we should still give some money to this cancer research place you're working for uh I would appreciate that, actually. We live in a terrible little office right now, and they're putting off the renovations to the new office because the college across the street wanted money for their renovation. And they... Anyway. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. I assumed since it was like leading tech-edge stuff, you had fancy offices and shit. I don't know. Research is crammed in like the fourth floor in a little closet. <laughs> oh, damn, dude. Yeah, we totally got to get more money towards this cancer research thing then. Sounds pretty awesome. All right. Anyways, Dan Wall, thank you. And uh, thank you all for listening. And we thank will. Thank you guys. Yeah, we'll be back in two weeks with more stuff. Good and night. with a Steven Zuber. <laughs> oh, yeah. Steven should be back from Cancun unless he decides to just stay there. I mean, I wouldn't blame him. I wouldn't blame him either, but he's got to come back. Right. He's going to run out of money eventually. Yeah, we need him. He needs his portion of the GDP. We need him to go on more tangents. I think we're, like, making reasonable time. Yeah, I know. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>